Let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And may the Lord bless us as we commence a study of this second epistle. It was a couple months ago, a few months ago, when I led you through the 16 chapters of the first epistle. We took a break for a while, and here we are at the second. I hope you remember that the first epistle of 16 chapters contained Paul's rebuke for that church for many abuses. There's almost a problem a chapter that he describes in there. They had denied the resurrection of the dead, were abusing the Lord's Supper, didn't know how to manage the gifts in the church, had an incestuous fornicator in their midst, had divisions, preacher factions, weren't giving, on and on the list goes. And so the apostle had to send a rather harsh and reproving epistle. And a little over a year later, he writes this one. We know the timing because he tells us in chapters 8 and 9, and we can tell by looking at the book of Acts and seeing how long he was in the places that he refers to in this epistle. Second Corinthians chapter 1 will introduce to us this follow-up letter from the apostle to this church that had so many problems. In the second epistle, he'll commend them for making so many changes that they had cleared themselves very well in the matters that he had corrected them for. But on the other hand, in this epistle, we will tell and be able to see very clearly, especially in chapters 10 through 12, that there was still a faction within the church at Corinth that despised Paul. Here's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, a personal friend of Jesus Christ, because Jesus appeared to Paul by himself, a miracle worker, a mighty man, knowledgeable in the scriptures, had dedicated himself to the cause of Jesus Christ, did not have a wife, did not have a permanent dwelling place, was sold out to the cause of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and yet men despised him. They despised him because of his authority in the gospel, because he preached what ought to be done and what was not acceptable, and men do not like preachers like that. They will get rid of them if they can. And there was a faction at Corinth that disliked Paul, and you will see Paul resorting to boasting about himself, which he despised doing, in order to defend his office and his person against his opponents that were still in the church at Corinth. It's a horrible thing as we get toward the end of this epistle that the Apostle Paul would have to deal with such enemies in a church like this that wouldn't have anything if it hadn't been for him. Because he was their father, as we read in 1 Corinthians 4, that had begotten them through the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to go rather rapidly. This is a good day in the Lord. We have a couple of new members to receive this morning. We have the Lord's Supper tonight. And I don't want you to get lost staring at the bark on a tree and have you miss the beauty of the forest of of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So hang with me. When you first read this chapter, you might think to yourself, well, there's not much in it for me. I believe every word of God is pure. Every single word of the King James Bible is pure. Given to us by the providence of God for the profit of our souls. And we rapidly approach the day in which will be the 400th anniversary of this blessed, fruitful edition of the Word of God. 
It's this Bible that made America great when it was preached. And America's fault today is because so many churches have left this Bible to preach other versions that are not sure of their words. We trust every word of God. When Satan tempted Jesus in Luke chapter 4 and said, You're hungry. Why don't you turn some of these stones into bread? Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. But if you go to the New Revised Standard Version, or the Revised Standard Version, or the Revised Version, or the American Standard Version, or the New American Standard Version, or any of those versions, those words aren't there. It says, Man shall not live by bread alone. I don't blame them for getting rid of those words. Since they don't really care about all the words of God, they should have taken those words out, and they did. We have a King James Bible that in Luke 4, 4 says, Man shall live by every word of God. Amen. And that was a quote from Moses in Deuteronomy. Right. That man shall live by every word of God. So as we come into this chapter, why did I say all that? You said you're short on time. Why did you say all that? Because when we go into a chapter like this, let's grab every word of it and see what there might be in it for us. Right. See if you can't find a favorite verse or two. Maybe the fourth verse about comfort. Maybe the 19th verse about the promises of God in Christ being yea, and in Him, amen, to the glory of God. Find yourself a favorite verse or two and enjoy it. Get on for the ride. Here we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read the first two verses, which are his salutation and greeting. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, And Timothy, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints, which are in all Achaia. Grace be to you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how a man of God opens a letter. That's his salutation. Instead of saying, Dear John, how are you? He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Grace be to you and peace from God our Father. He opens all of his epistles this way, except the epistle to the Hebrews, where he didn't want the readers to know that it was Paul writing it. Because he was, Paul generally wrote to Gentile churches. The Jews didn't really like him because he spent all of his time with the Gentiles, so there was some petty jealousy among them about Paul. So when he wrote a letter to the Hebrews, he just starts out with God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners, But that's not his ordinary way. This is his ordinary way. And he needs to open his epistle this way, reminding the church at Corinth that he was Paul, that he was an apostle. What's an apostle? An apostle is a special office in the church of which there were only a few, around 15. He said, I thought there were only 12. There were 12. Then Judas gave his up. They replaced him with Matthias. So we have 13. Barnabas is an apostle. We have 14. And there may have been some others that were not told about in the New Testament. Don't worry about that. It was a special office. To be an apostle, you have had to have seen the Lord Jesus Christ. You had to have all the gifts of the Spirit. You could do anything. You could preach anywhere, in any language, raise the dead and heal the sick. You could understand the Scriptures without study. You could preach and answer questions. You had the spiritual gifts of the church. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
because Jesus chose Paul more specifically than any other man. Paul was on his way, Saul of Tarsus, was on his way to the city of Damascus with letters from the chief priest that gave him binding authority that he could take Christians in that city and put them in prison. And Jesus Christ stopped him on that road and made him an apostle. And then Jesus Christ took Paul into Arabia for three years where he taught him personally, as you can read by comparing Acts chapter 9 with first with Galatians chapter 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Men don't choose the office of the ministry by themselves when it's done rightly. Now today, men go to college, they're, they're 18 years old. You know, they just were weaned yesterday. They're 18 years old, they were just weaned, they're sitting in the admissions office and they're flipping through the college catalog. They flip through it and they see religion. Cool. I wonder what they, what majors they offer in religion. Flip a few more pages. Cool. Minister. I think I want to be one. So they pull out their pen, write a check, sign their name, and they're going to have, get themselves a religious degree and become a minister. That's not how God makes ministers. God didn't, Paul, Paul, did Paul decide to be an apostle? I think Paul was trying to kill apostles. When I find him getting called to the ministry, he wasn't in some college admissions room. He was on the way to Damascus, and the Lord put Paul in the ministry. There's a lot more that can be said about that from Galatians 1, but we'll just pass it for now. And even in the New Testament, like it is right now, how does a man know that he's called of God to be a preacher? He doesn't do it by dreams. He doesn't do it by feelings. Because if we did it by feelings, every man in here should want to be a pastor. Because 1 Corinthians 12.31 says, Covet earnestly the best gifts. Don't covet them weakly. Covet them earnestly. The best gifts. And that's a teacher in the church. It's when another man, who is already one, is able to see in you that the hand of God is on you in abilities, and you are able and have the Spirit for doing the job. Remember, God told Moses, because Moses was scared. He went up into the mount and God showed Moses the blueprint for the tabernacle. And if you show me a blueprint for anything, you show me a blueprint for the simplest model that's available in a kid's store, five pieces, I get scared. But Moses had to look at a blueprint for the tabernacle with all of its decorations, all the priestly vestments, the altar, the brazen altar, the, the uh, candlestick, the showbread, the table for the showbread, all that. How am I going to make it? God said, see... I have called Bezalel. Right. Oh, yeah. Because there was one man in Israel that knew how to make anything. See, I have called Bezalel. How do you know that God had called Bezalel? Because the man could make anything out of anything. And God stirred up that man to go put his abilities that God had given to him to work in the best verse in the Bible about how a man's called the ministry. The, the, the abilities are visible. See, I've called Bezalel. You know who's going to take care of it, Moses. You couldn't make it if you had to. You'd be lucky to make your ark of bulrushes over again that you were found in by Pharaoh's daughter. That's how a man gets into the ministry. It's by the will of God. Paul adds Timothy because Timothy had preached at Corinth and he was a young man and Timothy's helping promote the reputation. Paul's helping promote the reputation of Timothy because he was young and he was also showing his agreement with Corinth that we have a mutual friend in Timothy. He's a friend to me. He's a friend to you. Timothy, our brother. 
unto the church of God, which is at Corinth. A group of saints in one place is called the church of God. Now, the church of God here is not a denominational name. If you open the yellow pages of your phone book, you're going to find the church of God. But if you go there, you're going to be a little surprised. Because the real church, the church of God, that's a denominational church of God, has some unique practices. Herbert W. Armstrong's Church of God expects you to keep all the Old Testament feasts and expects you to worship on Saturday instead of the Lord's Day. This is the Church of God as a designation of who owns the church, and that is the Lord God himself. Paul, an apostle, to this church, a group of assembled saints in one place that made the church, and they were separate from saints that were in other parts of this region called Achaia. If you looked at a map and saw Greece, the top half was Macedonia, the bottom half was Achaia. The bottom half was Achaia, and Corinth was one of its main cities. And what Paul is saying is, I'm writing this epistle to all the church members of the church at Corinth and all the saints that are scattered throughout Achaia. Some of them would have been in churches of their own. Some might not have been in churches yet. But they would have known about the Corinthian church because it was a famous and it was a large church. So he wanted them all to, he was greeting all of them and sending this epistle to all of them. Verse two, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He always opens this way because do you know what Paul knew and we should know? We need grace every day to do what is right. Amen. We need grace every day to please God. We need grace to see us through our lives and we're going to need grace in the day of our death. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father. God is the source of all peace. He's the source of peace between us and God, and He's the source of peace between us and other men, because it is God that causes the lion to lay down with the lamb. And He can give the peace in our own souls. Did you know that God is able to give peace into your soul that is beyond all understanding? Philippians 4, 7. That God is able to do that. And so what a blessing you can give someone when you say, Grace and peace be to you. That's nice. Can you think of anything better? How are you? Is that better? You doing okay? Is that better? You feeling good today? Is that better? Or is grace to you and peace about as good as it gets? Are those two great things that we really need? Peace with God, peace with others, and peace in here. Grace with God Grace in how to live and grace at the hour of our death. Grace and peace be to you from God our Father. God is not just our God. God is our Father. The God of Christians is a Father. Amen. Not a Father figure. He is our Father. He, he begets us by the power of the Holy Spirit in regenerating our hearts so that we have a new nature. So He's our Father truly. And he's our father in the way he treats us as his own dear children. And he has an inheritance waiting in heaven for us. He's God our father. But grace and peace also come from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul adds him on at the end of verse 2. Now let me read to you a little bit about comfort. Verses 3 through 7. Blessed be God. Could we stop right there and probably develop a sermon from those three words? Blessed be God. I know a man who did, and his name was David. He pulled out his pen one day. 
he felt the Holy Spirit in his heart and in his tongue, and he began to write, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Ever read Psalm 103? He'd make a sermon out of the three words. Because David and Paul were out of the same pod. David and Paul were so similar in their hearts. But we got to read the verses 3 through 7. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. Amen. Amen. Verses 3 through 7. God's ability to comfort. Notice that it says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know how He's the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? He begat a baby in the womb of a virgin. Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth is where He was born and raised. Jesus of Nazareth, where he was raised, for those of you that want to question that statement, where he was raised, Jesus of Nazareth was begotten by God the Father in the womb of a virgin. That's why we believe God is his Father. We do not believe God is the Father of the divine nature of Jesus Christ. We believe that in his divine nature, Jesus is the Father. Because there are three that bear record in heaven, but those three are one, and we believe in one God. Amen. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. He is the Father of mercies, the benevolent source of all mercies. He's the Father of them. He gives them out like a father would give favors, candy, treats to his children. And we need those mercies. He's the Father of mercies, and he's the God of all comfort. Comfort is strength. Comfort is encouragement. Comfort is to be consoled. To be lifted up, to be helped, is to be comforted. And God is the God of all comfort. No matter what your situation is today, and you and you need comfort, God is the God of all comfort. He's the God of strength, encouragement, lifting you up, inspiriting you, heartening you, encouraging you. God is the God of all comfort. And now he's about to explain why we have afflictions and troubles in our lives. Why do bad things happen? For us to learn a lesson so that we can help others. And Paul is talking about himself first. But we're going to draw from it a principle for every one of you. First, the ministry goes through afflictions so that they can learn how to comfort others. Until a minister has suffered some afflictions, trials, sins himself, he cannot serve the people of God as well as he can afterwards. Watch. 
Paul's talking about himself. He comes to verse 4. Who comforteth, comforteth us. And that us, Paul, Timothy, and other ministers. Because you're going to you're gonna be able to see easily as I keep reading that he's not talking about the saints at Corinth yet. He's talking about what he's going to do for the saints at Corinth because of what God has done for him and other ministers. Who comforteth us in all our tribulation. Why? Why does God allow tribulation? And then why does he comfort us in our tribulation as ministers? That we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Amen. How many times does comfort appear in that verse? How many times the word comfort in verse 4? Four. Four times in verse 4 we have the word comfort. God comforts us in our tribulation so that we can comfort others in any trouble with the same kind of comfort that God gave us. That's verse 4. It's very simple. That is why things happen that are afflictions or trials or troubles in our lives so that we can help others. Every one of you has your own unique deck of experiences. Right, Michael? Yours is a little unique. But we all have a unique one. Every one of us have gone through a set of circumstances, trials and failures in our lives that allow us, and we've been comforted by God because we're all here this morning, right? If we hadn't been comforted by God, we'd be off someplace, maybe this, maybe this, maybe in prison, where we could be anywhere. But we're here because God has strengthened, encouraged, and inspirited and heartened us so that we're here this morning. Every one of us has a unique set of experiences and that was given to you to help others in any trouble. Any trouble. I think I've been troubled enough in my life that I can help most anyone in trouble. Don't you feel that way? Have you had trials? I can look through I can look through the congregation and landing on you for one or two seconds, I can think about the troubles you've gone through. Why did God give those to us so that we can share the comfort with others that God showed us? Amen. That's verse 4. Look at verse 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, as a minister, Paul said, there's obviously sufferings abounding in us, and he called them the sufferings of Christ because they were from Christ, they were because of Christ, and they were for Christ's sake. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, I have a lot of them, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. You know, when you read Paul's resume... Stoned three times, beaten five times, whipped numerous times, shipwrecked several times, in perils of robbers, just abused wherever he went. You read that resume and you think, whoa, the man was abounding in sufferings. What kind of a life is that? But you know what? I'll bet he's the happiest man in the New Testament. When I read his writings, he sounds like the happiest man in the New Testament. Because as his sufferings abounded in Christ, so did the consolation by Christ. Jesus Christ always took care of him, even when he was suffering. That's verse 5. So our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. Though Jesus Christ subjects me to much persecution and trouble, he always takes care of me. He renews my strength day by day and gets me through it all, and Paul never gave up on the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6. And whether we be afflicted, It is for your consolation and salvation. 
go to the bottom part of the verse, or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. This is called parallelism. You have two thoughts being compared here. When we are afflicted in the ministry, it helps you Corinthians. When we are comforted in the ministry, it helps you Corinthians. And the middle tells us how it helps. Because the middle tells us it is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Do you know why David's Psalms mean so much to me? If God, if God would allow so many afflictions, troubles and trials in the life of David, then I shouldn't be discouraged when some come my way because I'm in good company. And I'd use that on everyone that I can. I look at Paul's life and I see so many trials and troubles in his life and I say, well, I shouldn't be surprised that I'm having one or two or three. Because if Paul had them, I should have them as well. And it it encourages me just to look at them both from the standpoint of how much they suffered. That's the first half of the verse. Notice what it says. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation. When, when they would read about Paul and all the afflictions he was going through, it would gird them up. If Paul can do it, I can do it. If Paul's that tough, mine aren't nearly as bad as his. I can handle mine. And the second half is that God would comfort the apostle and they would see the apostle continuing on, cheerful, joyful, because God's spirit was with him and they would say, God can take care of me as well. And so it would encourage them to consolation and salvation again. The salvation here is not eternal life. It's not even practical salvation, except if you want to get it very narrow. It's the salvation from discouragement because of afflictions in your life. There were two benefits by God punishing his ministers more than most. They saw that they were punished and it put them in good company to have afflictions like the ministry. And God saw them through those afflictions. And so saints could take confidence and hope that God would see them through those afflictions as well. That is verse 6. It's not complicated. It's not deep. It's just saying God's ministers suffer so that the people of God can take courage in the fact that we've done it already before you as an example. I'm speaking for Paul. I haven't suffered anything like Paul. And when God comforts us the way he does, speaking as Paul, you're able to take comfort from that as well. And it's your consolation and salvation. Otherwise, men would be in despair. Can you imagine a Corinthian being at peace in Corinth, a very prosperous city, very rich city, lots of fun and entertainment in Corinth, a very wicked, lascivious city, like Las Vegas or San Francisco in America. Can you imagine being one of the, one of the people in that city and being converted? You were living the good life, having a good time, comfortable, you know, Counting the days to retirement, whatever you think is a, is a good life. Then you're converted and all you're experiencing is trouble. What would keep a man from giving up in despair? The fact that the apostles were going through things worse and God was delivering them from those things with great comfort right. and deliverance. Right. And so the saints could do it as well. Amen. Verse 7, here's what Paul had to say about the Corinthians. Our hope of you is steadfast. We're sure of this about you. Corinthians in general, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. The sufferings that you're going through, Corinthians, we know are pretty severe. But we're confident 
that you're going to stand in them and you're going to get the same consolation that we get on a regular basis. The God of all comfort, because he had comforted and taken care of the apostles and he would do the same for the Corinthian church. Verses 8 through 11. He explains now why he opened this epistle by talking about the God of all comfort, because he needed some comfort. He needed some extreme comfort. And he now tells us why. 8 through 11. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Ye also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. Verses 8 through 11. I want you Corinthians to know that when I was at Ephesus, I got in serious trouble. The trouble was so bad that I despaired even of life. I did not think I was going to survive. I did not think I would live. Let me read to you from Acts chapter 19, just, just a verse to let you know. Paul's in Ephesus. And here's a verse that pops up in the middle of the chapter. And the same time, there arose no small stir about that way. That way being the Christian way. There arose no small stir. Well, now that's Luke using a figure of speech, meaning it got real ugly in Ephesus. And you read the rest of Acts 19, and it is real ugly. Those people were obsessed with their stupid goddess, Diana. They stood in the streets and for two hours screamed out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! There was a riot on account of the Christians in the city of Ephesus because those that made the idols were losing the bucks because pagans were being converted and were no longer buying idols. So the craftsmen got together and started a riot. Paul was in the midst of all that. And he says here in 2 Corinthians 1 that we were pressed out of measure. This was beyond description. You know, if if you've been pressed hard, and he's been pressed harder, and they've been pressed hardest, Paul says, I was beyond it all. It was horrible. Pressed out of measure. Above strength. It was beyond what we could endure. Insomuch that we despaired even of life. Now, watch some beautiful wording. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves. It was just our idea that we weren't going to make it. Now, this is so... Please find a verse that you like. Do you like the four comforts in verse 4? Then lay hold of that and don't forget the verse. It can comfort you for a long time and it can tell you why bad things happen to you so that you can comfort others when they're in any trouble. But when you come to this verse... We had the sentence of death in ourselves. The magistrates of Ephesus hadn't sentenced them to death. The sentence of death was in themselves because they were despairing of life in themselves. They had passed the sentence upon themselves. We're not going to get out of this. Do you remember when Luke did that one time? Where, where, where did Luke do that? Do any of you remember? On a ship. How many days had it been since he saw the sun? Fourteen days. You can read it in Acts chapter 27. Luke despaired of life. If you were on a ship, listen, 14 minutes, and I start throwing up when I'm on a ship in a storm. 
One. One minute. I start throwing up. Fourteen hours would be unbearable. It was almost unbearable, right, Charlie and Dave? Fourteen days is unthinkable. So Luke was about to despair of life. You can read it in Acts 27 and 28. Paul that time didn't despair. Paul got on deck and said, men, be of good cheer. You know, the deck is weaving all over, and Paul says, men, be of good cheer. Break out the bread and let's make sub-sandwiches. Because you're going to need to eat for some strength. Because the angel of the Lord appeared to me this night and said that not one of you is going to be lost. Now that is comforting. But here, Paul had the spirit of life and he had the sentence of death in himself. Do you, do you like that? Okay. Okay, let me, let me strip for you again in character, in, in experiences and afflictions. Do you ever say the words to yourself, I can't do it. I just can't get it all done. That's how I talk to myself when I'm getting like Paul. I pass a sentence on myself that I'm not going to get it all done. We had the sentence of death in ourselves. It wasn't in the legal processes of Ephesus. It was in themselves. Right. It was the despairing of life of verse 8. That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead. Instead of thinking, I can't get it all done, we ought to say, the Lord can help me get it done. The Lord will help me do it. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, including surviving the difficulties at Ephesus. Verse 10. He's, he's explained to these Corinthians, we were really pressed in Ephesus. So bad. Worse than anything I can describe to you because there's no measurement of it. But the idea that we were ready to despair was foolish because it was in ourselves because God saved us. Who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. God saved me from death in Ephesus. God continues to save me from death in every city that I go to. And God will always save me from death and trouble and deliver me as he always has. And till the very end of Paul's life, the last words that Paul wrote... In 2 Timothy chapter 4, after he had appeared before Caesar, he said, No man stood with me, but the Lord stood with me. That verse right there, verse 10, is often quoted to be appealing to several phases of salvation. Like the legal phase, he, he delivered us from so great a death. He doth deliver the ongoing intercession of Christ, and in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us final glorification. There aren't three phases of salvation in that verse. All the deliverances and all the deaths here are the deaths of persecutors against Paul. Physical dying. Look at the context. We let the context rule. Is it true that God has saved us legally and he's saving us now by his life in heaven and he's going to save us at the great day of judgment? Are those things true? Absolutely. But this verse is not teaching them. Now, if I use this verse to teach them, I could preach a great sermon from that verse, 10, because I've got three kinds of death there. I've got a verse, and I've got the truth, but I'm using the wrong verse for the truth. And that is the first step to heresy, and we don't do that. We do not use a verse out of its context. A verse out of its context is a pretext. Paul is not teaching about the three phases of salvation in this verse. He's talking about God delivered me from death at Ephesus. He keeps delivering me from just about every city I visit from death. And he's going to keep delivering me. 
And he gets to the end of his life, and he says, God delivered me again when he was before Caesar. Verse 11, And you Corinthians helped me in all this. You helped this. Ye also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. What does that verse say? That verse says, God delivered us in answer to your prayers, and it was by the means of many people praying for us that the gift from heaven, which was deliverance from death, because we couldn't trust in ourselves because it was beyond our strength, it was a gift from heaven that saved us from death, was bestowed by God by the means of many people praying for us, and now those many people ought to thank God on our behalf. That's verses 8 through 11. Verses 12 through 14. Paul's going to appeal to the integrity of his ministry. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you were. For we write none other things unto you than what ye read or acknowledge, and I trust ye shall acknowledge even to the end. As also ye have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. These three verses, Paul is say, Paul's moving now. He's leaving comfort, and he's leaving his tribulations to say, I can promise you, Corinthians, our rejoicing, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, the way that we live and the way that we preach is in simplicity. It's straightforward. It is honest. It is not hypocritical. It is serious. It is one mind for one goal at all times. That's the way we've lived and that's the way we've preached. And in sincerity, we have an honest, righteous, holy desire for your well-being. That is how we have conducted ourselves with all men, and especially how we conducted ourselves in Corinth. Because he said, we did this in the world and more abundantly to you word. The last part of verse 12. He said, we did not do it with fleshly wisdom. We did not come in with flattering speeches. We did not try to win you by friendliness. We came in and preached the gospel of the grace of God, leaving the results up to the grace of God. Hasn't he said that in other places as well? Like 1 Corinthians 2 where he said, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I chose not to use any of the words of man's wisdom, but just simply to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and let, the, let God give the results. I didn't use the winning ways of men to move congregations, but simply preaching the word of God. And that's the way I've lived, and I've done it toward everyone. But if there's any church I really did it toward, it was you Corinthians. Paul was an apostle. Do you think he could discern that he might have problems at that church? Yeah. Do you think a church that was given over to lascivious living like the Corinthians were might need an extra example? And Paul gave it to them here in verse 12. But by the grace of God, I did everything by the grace of God. I just laid it out there straightforward, simplistically, not looking like I was making efforts to win men, trusted the results to the Lord. You get the right kind of results that way. Do you know what seeker-sensitive churches mean? It means that by fleshly wisdom, we'll get as many as we can because results tell us that we're godly. Yeah. 
That's how churches measure themselves today. The bigger is better. Obviously, the Lord's with us because look at we grow, we grew from 4,000 to 5,000 members. Obviously, the Lord's with us. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 6, 5 that that is the very opposite way of reasoning. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Not, gain is not godliness. Godliness is gain. That's the measure of a church. How holy are they living? That's the measure. Paul, Paul lived and taught that way. Verse 13, for we write none other things unto you than what ye read or acknowledge. There's no double message, no secret meaning. In my words, we're just straightforward, in your face, blunt, direct, obvious, clear. What you read is, that's all we meant. Don't read between the lines. Where was, where was Corinth? How far do you think it was from Athens? Million miles? 10,000? 50? Very close to Athens. Athens, the center of Greek learning. Now, how did Greeks speak? Blunt, in your face and direct, or philosophically with sophistry to seduce and deceive the minds of men. And Paul was continually warring against that kind of preaching. You know, I want to be a preacher like Elijah, John, Jesus, and Paul. My patterns are simple and they're obvious because I got a lot of records of how they spoke and taught. And those men, when Jesus preached, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what does it say the people did? They were astonished. Why? Because he spake with authority and power, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the most conservative religious sect in Israel. They were preaching every Sunday, every, every Sabbath, all over Israel. The people, the people just didn't see a marginal difference. They were astonished because Jesus spoke with authority. This is the way it is. That's wrong. This is right. Instead of the meandering storytelling, nothing that comes out of most pulpits today and pulpits then. It's pitiful. Verse 14. As also ye have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. There's a little ellipsis in there. It's a, it, you're, you're our rejoicing in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul's saying, we have... We have great confidence towards you. We're thankful for your confidence toward us. You're rejoicing in us as your apostles and ministers, and we're rejoicing in you as well. But I want you to notice two words in verse 14, in part. As also ye have acknowledged us in part. Only some of the Corinthians rejoiced in Paul and the other ministers because there was a segment in Corinth that didn't. They did not all Rejoice in Paul. And so he mentions, he hints right there. But when we get to chapter 10, you're going to see three long chapters where the Apostle Paul has to boast to defend his person and his office. Corinth yet. Verse 15. And in this confidence, knowing that you Corinthians, for the most part, loved me and I loved you, in this confidence, I was minded to come unto you before that ye might have a second benefit, and to pass by you into Macedonia, and to come again out of Macedonia unto you, and of you to be brought on my way toward Judea. That's what his plans were. Do you know you can go to 1 Corinthians 16 and read these exact plans? 
See, he wrote the church of Corinth on an epistle with 16 chapters. And in the last chapter, it didn't have 16 chapters when they got it. It's 16 chapters in our Bible. When they got it, at the end of it, he said exactly what he just summarized there about his intentions to come and spend the winter with them. He didn't do it. And do you know what that evil faction in that church said about him? He wasn't a man of his word. He wasn't sure of himself. He varied. He changed his opinions. He wasn't consistent. And so he writes this verse, verse 17. When I therefore was thus minded, when I wrote you the first epistle and told you I was coming to see you, did I use lightness or the things that I purpose? Do I purpose according to the flesh that with me there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay? Verses 15 through 17. Knowing that we had a good relationship, relatively good, I loved you people, I had given myself for you, and most of you rejoiced in me. I made plans at the end of my first epistle to come and see you when I could, to give you a second benefit. The second benefit means we had a pretty good time when I first came to Corinth, didn't we? That's Acts chapter 18. That's when they were all converted. He said, I want to come and give you a second benefit. This is something that most churches today do not understand the purpose for preaching the gospel. They think that preaching the gospel is only of real value if you preach to the lost in order to get them saved. Paul valued the gospel for preaching it to the saved that they might be saved better. When you go to Romans chapter 1, it's when he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and salvation. Go back and read the eight verses before that. He says, Your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So, as much as in me is, I want to come and preach the gospel to you that are at Rome. That I can impart unto you some spiritual gift, and that we might mutually encourage each other by the faith that is in you and the faith that is in me. Do you know what the only verse they ever quote from Romans 1 is? Ever. Where's my opinion? Ever. Right, Dad? Only one verse out of Romans 1 do they ever quote. Verse 16. And verses 8 through 15 say that everything he's saying about the gospel is he wants to preach it to the saints that were in Rome because they're the ones that would appreciate it. Why do you want to preach the gospel to those that are lost? Do you know what 2 Corinthians 4 is going to tell us? They're blinded and they can't see the gospel. The gospel is foolishness to those that are perishing. People on their way to hell that are not born again, the gospel is a ridiculous joke. But to those that are saved, 1 Corinthians 1.18, they love it. It's the power and the wisdom of Christ, of God in Christ. So that's what he meant in verses 15 and 16. I had good plans, good intentions. I was going to come and see you. I've changed my mind. I didn't make it. Verse 17, there are some of you that are accusing me of being inconsistent and not a man of my word. And so I ask you, when I therefore was thus minded, did I use lightness? Did I just flippantly put my last epistle that I'm going to come and see you? Did I just purpose in my flesh that that's what I was going to do? Was I only resting in my flesh? Am I a fleshly person that cannot keep my commitments? And the yay, yay, and nay, nay, what does that mean? Here's what it means. Someone comes up to you and says, Hey, are you going to play volleyball on Saturday? Yeah, yeah, I'm going. Yeah, yeah, I'm going. Yeah, yeah. Are you with me? Then someone else comes to you a day later that has a little different slant. They're not going to go on Saturday. 
Are you going to go play volleyball on Saturday? No, no, I don't think I'm going to go. So you're a yeah, yeah, no, no, nay, nay person. You change your mind. You change your mind to suit the circumstances. Yeah, yeah, in the flesh, I'm going to do it. No, no, I've changed my mind. I'm not going to do it. That's what those words mean at the end of verse 17. A man who changes his mind does not keep his word, is not constant, and is not fixed on one goal so that when he says something, he does it. They were accusing Paul of that, and he's answering it with three questions. Did I use lightness when I told you my plans? Two, did I purpose in the flesh when I made my plans? Number three, Am I just some man that says yes on one occasion and no on another occasion for the same thing? We know the answer to those three questions. Paul was not like that. Paul was a man of his word. And Paul did not use lightness. And Paul did not purpose things in the flesh. He's going to tell us in just a minute why he didn't go to Corinth. But he, he transitions right now to talk to, to play off. And this is Paul's method so many times. Since he's used the words yay, yay, and nay, nay, he's going to play off those words for our benefit for about three verses. Watch this. Verse 18. Verse 18. But as God is true, Paul swears. That is an oath. He is confirming his word. But as God is true, swearing by the person of God and his truthfulness, our word towards you was not yay and nay. We did not say yes one day and no the next, nor were we confused nor did we send a mixed message. You knew exactly where we stood and what we believed and what we taught and what we were intending to do. But as God is true, our word toward you was not varying like that with a yes and no. And I love verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. And for all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. Verses 19 and 20 are glorious verses. And Paul gets to them by transitioning off a verse in verse 17 where he's talking about himself being a yes and no kind of a guy, confused, mixed messages, not certain of himself and not keeping his word, he transitions off of that, playing off the word yea and nay to present the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it's like. Because the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached, is not yes and no, it is all yes. Yes, this is the way it is. Yes, he was born of a virgin. Yes, he lived three and a half years and did good and performed miracles. Yes, he died on the cross and was buried by the Romans. Yes, he rose after three days and three nights. And yes, he sits in heaven. And yes, he's coming again. It's all yea and in him, amen. Right. The word amen's, amen means, be it so in truth. It is so, really, verily, truly. And so the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ are the facts of the gospel. And they are all yes and they are all certain. By yea, and in him, amen. Every promise you read in the Bible, you can trust it. It is truer than gravity. Whether it's the first verse in the Bible that says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Right. In the Lord Jesus Christ, who created all things by the word of his power, it is yea, God created all things in the beginning, and in him it is amen. 
That's how we're to read the Bible and understand the whole gospel. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, every promise of God in Christ is certain. It is yes. There is no varying in it. Listen, the Bible tells me about the God that we worship, that there is not even the shadow of turning in Him. James 1.17 He doesn't... Have I ever promised any of you something and didn't do it? I'm sure. I'm sure. But do you know with Him, there isn't even the shadow of it. Right. You know, there's my shadow. Now, how much is that of me? Hardly anything. It's just a shadow. With God, there's not even the shadow of turning, James 1.17. Amen. He is absolutely certain in all that He has promised and all that He's going to do for us in Jesus Christ. And Paul, though he's talking about why he didn't come to Corinth at the appointed time that he had given them in the first epistle, runs off for a little bit to lift up the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't accuse me of being a vague person because when I was with you and Paul was, and Timothy was with you and Sylvanus was with you, we taught you that the promises of God in Christ are yea and in him are amen to the glory of God. If God was ever not to keep one promise, would that ruin his glory? Absolutely. Will God ever lose any glory? Will He ever give glory to another? He's going to get it all. And He's going to get us all there. That's why, nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His. He's going to get every single one of us there. All to the glory of God. Because all the promises of God in Christ are in Him. Yea, and in Him. Amen. Not in Paul, in Him, Jesus Christ. Verses 19 and 20 ought to be your, some of your favorite verses from chapter 1. Verse 21, Now He which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God. You Corinthian brethren, we are together. God has established us on a foundation of absolutely sure promises. Do you know where our salvation rests? God has said He would save. That's where it rests. God's promises in Christ that he would not lose one of them. She shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That promise of God in Christ, which was given by the angel to Joseph, it is in him, yea, and in him it is amen. And we are established on that foundation. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ, and hath anointed us, is God. Everywhere you read Paul, all the honor, all the glory for our salvation goes back to God. It is God. It is not there making a decision at an evangelistic rally. It is God that first anointed them with the Holy Spirit. He gave them the Holy Ghost, regenerating them and changing their heart, making them kings and priests. Then He established them. You say, it doesn't look that way in my Bible. I've got the word established coming before the word anointed. Well, why don't you check out your verb tenses before you jump all over me? Because the anointing took place before the establishing. If you'll read your verb tenses. The establishing is a present tense verb, and the anointing is a perfect tense, because he hath anointed us. Verse 22, who hath also God, it's all of God, God hath also sealed us, and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. What's earnest money? What's earnest money? If you're going to buy a house, what's earnest money? A deposit, a promise to pay, a a performance bond, earnest money, down payment. 
What is the earnest of our eternal inheritance? The presence of God in our hearts. Amen. And if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Everyone that is a child of God has the presence of the Spirit of God in their hearts. There is something inside them that tells them what I'm preaching, what Paul preached, what other men preached, is true. There is something inside them that tells them God is true, and I ought to be living for Him. That is the presence of the Spirit of God. And the more you obey Him, that presence of the Spirit of God becomes stronger and stronger in your life. For it causes you to love others that in the past you would have blown them off because you didn't have love for them. It gives you joy that in the past you wouldn't have had because you were depressed and angry all the time. It gives you peace that you didn't have because you're bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And that presence of God in our lives that convicts us, warns us, pushes us, nags us. I thank God for nagging by the Spirit of God. And causes us to feel those things and to move us closer to Jesus Christ. That presence inside of us is the earnest. It's the down payment on what's coming. Amen. There is something coming that will be glorious because then he'll fold us in his arms and take care of us and there will not even be sin allowed in our souls. He will purify and purge us and glorify us in heaven. But right now we have the down payment by that powerful presence in us. And if you say to me right now, I don't have a powerful presence in me, we have two prop situations. Either you're not born again or two, you've been living kind of a carnal, worldly, sinful life. And when you do that, it quenches and grieves down right. the Spirit of God so you don't know that you have them. But I'll tell you, if you'll give yourself and dedicate yourself to the worship of God and obeying His Word, you will have flowing out of you rivers of living water. Amen. You will have a presence. And every one of us knows that it ebbs and flows depending on how well we fight our war that day. Right. That's the earnest. That's verses 21 and 22. Now, I want you to know that the yay, yay, and nay, nay up in verse 17, Paul was explaining why he hadn't come to Macedonia because his enemies in this church were accusing him of being an inconsistent man who, was, who could not be trusted for his word. He used yay and nay to get off on the glorious promises of God in Jesus Christ. Verses 18, 19, 20. Then our seal and the earnest of our inheritance and our anointing and our establishing in verses 21 and 22. He's taken it aside, sort of. Now he comes back in verses 23 and 24. Why didn't I come to Corinth? I'll tell you why. Now I'll tell you why. Verse 23. Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul. Now that is an oath. That is quite an oath. I'm about to tell you something, and I want you to know that it is absolutely true, and by that I appeal to God as a record on my soul that that's what I was thinking then, and that's what I am telling you now. It is the truth as to why I haven't come to Corinth yet. Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth. The reason I haven't come to Corinth yet was to be merciful, was to give you a period of time where you could take my first epistle and put it into practice. Because if I would have come immediately upon the heels of that first epistle, I was so worked up, I would not have spared you when I got to Corinth. I would have tore into you for all your abuses that I, that I listed in the first epistle. That's why I'm not there. It's not because I'm inconsistent. That's from your little minds. That's from proud men who want to sit in judgment on a man as great as the Apostle Paul and say he's inconsistent. 
I get defensive for my brother Paul. Amen. Studying this chapter, I got very angry that people could sit and judge a man as great and as sacrificial and as selfless and as loving as the Apostle Paul. And saying he doesn't keep his word. You better be thankful he hadn't kept his word, brother. Because if he'd have got there, he wouldn't have spared you for sure. Amen. That's why he didn't come, because he was being as wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. Right. He was practicing the mercy and truth that his brother David had taught him. Amen. His first Corinthians fifteen first Corinthians the, the epistle of First Corinthians, is it mercy or is it truth? It's truth. That he waited a year before he came is mercy. mercy. There's mercy and truth. He was a wise manager. Yeah. We would all do well to think about what he did. Was Paul concerned about all the abuses at Corinth? Very. Did he put it all down in writing that they needed to correct things? Yes. Did he back off to give them a space of time to repent? Yes. That's why he wasn't there. The Lord had led him to back off on his intentions, to give them a period of time to clear themselves. And do you know what? For the most part, it worked. Now, because our brother just had to be tough in verse 23, and I feel for him having to be tough at times, look what he says in verse 24. He backs off a little bit, comforts them. He says, not for that we have dominion over your faith. I'm not the Lord or master of your faith. We're just servants of your joy. We're helpers of your joy. The only reason that I would ever come to Corinth is not to dominate and be a Lord over you. I would come to be your servant to help you experience the fullness of joy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You already stand by faith. You do have faith. You have held to most of the principles that I've taught you of the Christian religion. You're a good church. But I've waited for a year for you to show your character. And you've done well. And even though I said I wouldn't have spared you a year ago, I'm not your Lord. Remember how the Bible tells us that ministers can't be lords over God's heritage, but right. examples to the flock. He said, all I want to be is a servant to your joy. I want you to have the abundant life that Jesus Christ intended for all his saints. This is Second Corinthians chapter 1. There's comfort in it, ministerial integrity, deliverance from a sentence of death that we sometimes put in ourselves. There is the yea and nay life and preaching, and there's the yea and amen that is in Christ Jesus. There's the earnest of our inheritance, and there's a wise minister, the Apostle Paul. I hope that I've opened up this chapter well enough for you that you can sit down and read it now and know what Second Corinthians chapter 1 means, mm -hmm. and within its words can find comfort for your soul. This is the word of the Lord, and God chose to put this chapter in the Bible for us to understand. And I hope that we've done that this morning. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.